welcome to the Great Rift Podcast, uh, episode 21, interview episode 2. Uh, I'm David. I'm Jamie. Hello, mate. You good? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. So, for those that have blindly walked into the episode and not read the title, we've got a very special guest today. We've got uh, Mr. Graham McNeil. Hello, Graham. Hello. Good evening, afternoon or morning, whenever you listen to this. Hello. How are you? In sunny California, right? Sunny Los Angeles. I'm very jealous. I mean, we've I don't know about if you know much about the UK weather at the moment, but it's alternating between snow and sun like every day. Yeah, I, I get the odd I get the odd weather report from my folks back in Glasgow. Yeah, it's, it's Britishness. We've got to talk about the weather. It's four seasons in one day. <laughs> Here we have one season and one year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I say, if someone has blindly walked onto the episode and doesn't have a clue who Graham McNeil is, who is Graham McNeil and what does he do? Well, the short answer is Graham McNeil is a writer who's been writing novels and short stories and stuff for the last damn near 20 years uh, for Games Workshop and Black Library uh, primarily, but also for people like uh, Blizzard, StarCraft II, Fantasy Flight Games, The Arkham Horror. And for the last uh, nearly six years, I've been working as one of the senior writers out here in L.A. for... Riot Games, who make League of Legends, amongst other games. Massive franchises, very big franchises. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So one of the first things I wanted to touch on before we go into Black Library-related stuff was not everyone knows that you didn't start with novel writing. You started, from my knowledge, anyway, in the studio at Games Workshop. Yeah. What was the sort of stuff you worked on at a very sort of top level um, in the studio? And what was your favourite bit to work on in the shooting? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I have very vivid memories from from those days. I mean, uh, I mean, I came to the studio originally uh, as a staff writer, and they, I think, they envisaged me as kind of doing like hobby articles, you know, interviewing the heavy metal painters about you know painting Eltharion and Abaddon and what have you, uh, doing reports from you know tournaments and games days and stuff like that more of a sort of journalistic style of writing um but that was and i did i did some of that but that was never really my my bag particularly i was very much more of the, the fiction and the backstory and so on so i started off doing you know like famous regiments of the imperial guard articles for white dwarf so you know we did like the krieg and the kachan jungle fighters and so on um and from there, I started, you know, I wrote a bunch of color text pieces that went alongside battle reports in codexes and army books. And it just gradually, you know, I, I sort of insidiously wormed my way into the process of uh, army books and codexes via uh, Inquisitor, which I, I worked on with. Well, Gav did Inquisitor and we, myself and Phil and some of the others helped out with additional rules, additional characters, scenarios, battle reports and stuff like that. And from there, it was literally a short hop and a skip to working on, you know, a full codex. I'd done some stuff with the first Tau codex when it came out uh, or when it was in development, working on who the Tau were, what their cast structure was like, what their various characters and army feel was like and so on. Uh, But it wasn't until we came to uh, Demon Hunters that we full on went to the, like this is Phil, Graham, Andy, this is your codex, go run with it. Uh, and that was great because that was just a chance to sort of really bring sort of madness back to a bit of 40k yeah. lore 
and you know crazy servitors mad pieces of war gear strange stories in the background and so on it just you know because a lot that at that at that time certainly early 2000s you know i i felt that 40k was quite you know super soldiers in space and that was it you know they had got a bit flat they'd been lost some of that 80s crazy that yeah. was in there from a lot of the like ian watson novels and the first edition of rogue trader and so on uh so there's a chance to really go back into that and we've just kept adding to it ever since <laughs> I, yeah I think, definitely i was on, gonna then. say when um the, the link between as you talk about the inquisition game and then the demon hunters and the witch hunt and stuff you can definitely see there's a stepping away from the as you say the super soldiers and have that line of just the the darker good side of of, of the Imperium. exactly and it it begun to you know we wanted to make sure that there that there was no good side as such you know while there are sides and you'd maybe prefer one <laughs> they could never really be classed as the good guys because ultimately they live in a a terrible monotheistic state that demands thousands <laughs> of sacrifices every day just for it to continue existing. Yeah. But also on the other flip of the coin, you've got, well, actually in this case, when you have some an organization called the Inquisition, demons and witches are actually real and can actually destroy your planet and eat your face and mind and corrupt an entire system. So there's, there's that constant tension of this place we live in called the Imperium is awful. But actually, the other side of that coin of the demons is pretty bad too. So I'm maybe <laughs> going to stick one. with the ones that aren't going to eat my face off tomorrow. <laughs> so that's fun. You know, keeping that tension in the world just you know gives you that friction and drama, of the characters and a chance to explore yeah. uh, situations that are not as clean cut as well. We are clearly the good guys. You're clearly the bad guys. Easy money. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest appeal, in my opinion. And if I was to ever work in the studio, that's definitely the angle I would always look at. I think just touching on your point around Tau as well, I think Tau might have had a notion once upon a time of these sort of like brand new army, but also slightly good guys because they're about the greater good. And even they have a layer of, what's yeah, that? not corruption, a layer of. There's like, a secrecy in there, isn't there? There's, there's an authoritarian secret. streak to them there that you know, like we are we are obviously the good guys and if you don't agree then you're one of the bad guys yeah and the way they like sneakily off side handedly will will dominate new races without them realizing so where is the imperium sort of a benevolent just... tyranny kind of yeah, thing yeah the imperium will 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 you know uh, wipe your planet to make a point the the tower will more along the lines of slowly uh, stop you from breeding correctly so that over the next three generations you yeah. die out anyway. You know, it's, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on with the tower that's, you know, been developed a, a lot since the first codex yeah. came yeah. out that gives them that that 40k spice to them that they're not just the the counterpoint good guys in their cool yeah. mech suits and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, to touch on your earlier, you know, part of the early one, what was your the favorite one to work on? I mean, it's it was. Our way of looking at it was if it's not the one you are working on right now, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I I worked, you know, I got to work with, you know, on the Empire book, uh, the Army book for Warhammer, I got to work with John Blanche very closely, which was wow. an, an honor on every single level because yeah. the, the man's mind is just, you know, works on a different level to yeah. most of us. Um, with Black Templars, I got to work very closely with Mark Gibbons and his artwork again was hugely inspirational for that a lot of his concept stuff had 
things and it was like yeah there's so many ideas here there's enough images and concepts in this drawing for 10 figures let alone one he was my number one when I was a kid growing up. Uh, Mark Gibbons, specifically the uh, Escher gang image where there's yeah. an Escher teenager in half on the staircase. She's got no legs <laughs> and she's just blasting away with an auto pistol. And I just remember being about 10 going, this is for me. <laughs> I like this. <that. laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I enjoyed working, like say, the Wood Elves. I worked with uh, Aunt Reynolds and Paul Jacock very closely. Uh, well, th- that was their book, sorry. They were working on it and I was looking at it and it took a ton of inspiration from it so yeah. you know that i wrote uh gardens of the forest based on that stuff but see that that wasn't my book that was very definitely theirs but mm. you know we did we did so many things over the course of the, the years that you know every one of them has a has great memories of, of one thing or another you know I was any- my first book and demon hunters with phil and andy and witch hunters with andy Hoare. you know we did a ton of things and they were all great fun and all just you know a lot of lot of good memories of those years so touching on the good guys and the imperium not quite having good guys i think i think that the least bitter pill to swallow would probably be ultramar in somewhere in the 500 worlds i think you're gonna it's still pretty nasty place but it's a little less nasty and um one i've me and jamie talked about this in the past on our podcast and i i've never actually collected them but i'm a massive advocate for the ultramarines and a lot of their successors and I think it's because one of the first books I ever bought as a teen was the original Ultramarines Omnibus um, with Uriel Ventris. Um, and I wanted to know why you picked those up as a challenge back in the day, because they've always had that poster boy smurf thing, which really grates at me because I think they're probably the most ruthless and efficient fighting force in the Imperium. But what was it about them that made you go? that's the novel for me and I'm going to make a very long running series. Okay. Yeah. So you more or less, uh, you answered your own question there with the exact answer I would give. I, <laughs> I looked at, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of that sort of Greco Roman period of history, you know, Alexander, Marius and Sulla, the, you know, the wars after Alexander died and so on. I love that, that whole ethos of history. And again, I, I looked at the ultramarine history and background and people, Oh, they're boring. I was like, I was like, really? Have you, have you read this? This is this is cool. Yeah. This is you know, murdered father, avenging sons, you know, sent off to war as a child and conquered essentially a, a you know, his own series of star systems to yeah. bring into the fold. I mean, I, I just love that. And I, I, the fact that a lot of people, I think, you know, labeled them as you know, boring, vanilla, Smurfs, whatever, was similarly to to you it's like it was like it grated on me i was like they're not and i so it's almost like a challenge to myself like i'm gonna write their index astartes and i'm gonna write stories about them that challenge that assumption i want to make them cool by what they do and how they do it and the fact that they are sort of the one of the few chapters that hold to the initial kind of ethos of the space marines that has been either diluted corrupted twisted or otherwise changed over the millennia. Um, so they were, they were just something that I really liked and wanted to do and to show that these characters can still be fascinatingly flawed and interesting without having to be space Vikings or space vampires or space yeah. monks with a secret. You know, they were, I thought these guys deserve to be as interesting and as played and as loved as the, any other chapter. And I thought that was part of my mission statement more than yeah. anything else 
Yeah, I, I really, really, yeah, I think we're on the same level there because um, it was that was a growing up, you know, with bright second edition codex and army books covers. Like you say, you had your space Vikings and your your monsters <laughs> and your vampires. Yeah. And then Ultramarines always just got template. We are template space marines. And it's like, actually, yeah. they probably got more history than anyone else in the hobby uh, in terms of their lore. It's it's incredible that, you know, they're led by, or were led, and are led again. And are led the, again, yes. By the world's greatest admin, or the universe's greatest admin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is, you always talk about, but in the Horus Heresy, though, people, I think some of the stories about him as well, is you really get a good sense of his character, that actually there is more to him than just you know being mm-hmm. organ organization and it kind of is he plays on that as you said graham the um the sort of caesar kind of character where yeah. on the outside is total control but there's a lot of a lot of backstabbing a lot of uh, sort of kneeving underneath that he has to do to get to get to where he is so yeah exactly so uh touching on ultramarines then so obviously you've done quite a few books along uh with, with you real ventress and Obviously, you've got your new one. I don't want to give away too many spoilers. We try to stay away from new book yeah. spoilers. Got the Swords of Health. One of my big questions for you is: obviously, we're going. There's a lot of Primaris around now, and Uriel's one of the few we've seen so far sort of take the Calgar's yeah. furnace, the sort of Rubicon. Um, what is it about him moving into the Primaris space? What is the biggest challenge of of taking mm-hmm. that and going? Oh, he's had an upgrade. What was it about moving him forward with the line that meant? you wanted to write that or was it more of a request from games workshop because they made a model what sort of avenue how did that come about yeah i mean it was it it wasn't it certainly didn't come from we're making a model you know can you write a story about it it was um i in chatting with nick kine my editor on this we were talking about how you know because it's been quite a while since i've written the ultramarines you know lots of other you know heresy siege and moving to the us what have you kind of kept pushing those stories back down the, you know, onto the back burner list and so on. So it was a, in a conversation with Nick, we were looking at, well, where do we take this? Where do we take the stories? Where do we take the character? Mm. And in, in that conversation, I, I don't, don't remember. I don't think there was an exact moment where one of us said, let's make him Primaris. It was, mm. uh, I kind of, it grew out of the conversation as this would be an interesting place to take him, given that, you know, the galaxy has changed. The Primarch is back. And Uriel is the the consummate sort of servant of the Imperium, and uh, Ultramar would probably look at this and go, "Well, how best can I serve? You know, what's the best me that can be an Ultramarine?" Mm-hmm. And volunteering for that would be, you know, would, would be part of his character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as writing him goes, you know, the biggest for me, the biggest challenge was to walk the fine tightrope of making him or writing him still as recognizably Uriel, but also somebody who has changed, who has evolved and is not, he's not just, you know, it doesn't read as exactly the same, but now he's bigger and stronger. You know, that there are changes that are wrought into his physicality and his psyche that make him different enough. You go, yeah, this, this, this guy might not be the same in many ways, but there's enough there that the readers still love him. You know, they still want to follow his adventures with the, with the swords, with Ultramar and so on. But they can see that there's something different about you. You know, it's not just, you know, you've got a new haircut or whatever. There's been changes wrought in his mind. And some of, you know, we deal, not all of with, with them, but some of those are dealt with and addressed in Swords of Cal, where we see a, a newer, somewhat colder, harder 
version of Uriel come out because you know he's been he's been wrought to be almost like the ultimate weapon mm-hmm. and parts of you know you have to die essentially when you're crossing the Rubicon and be reborn and you know that that line from uh, Dan's book about you know the the old philosopher's line of no man steps in the same river twice but it's not the same river and he is not the same man I very much wanted to carry that across that's something of crossing the Rubicon just in its literal sense of becoming a Primaris and it's you know, harking back to history period, you know, Caesar, when he crossed that river, was not the same man by any stretch of the imagination. And I wanted something of that to come out in the character that you are committed to a course now that makes you colder in some ways, more analytical, more lethally logical in your thinking as a soldier. Okay. Whereas that's not what made him Uriel. You know, it was the, his compassion for the people of Pavonis or uh, Tartus Ultra that made him the soldier that could do the things that he did. So that's going to be, I think, a, a running theme in his, you know, further adventures of fighting against the urge of the Primaris to be like the Terminator, you know, <laughs> as opposed to his humanity. Yeah, and that's that's always been his 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 biggest, um, in my opinion, his biggest draw is, as you see in book two, where he saves, I think it is Pavonis with the Tyranids, um, where. Uh, he gets censured essentially and it's yeah it feels i haven't read sword of Calf yet. i'm not quite there but Thiel from the heresy uh you know who was one of uh gilliman's number ones you know that he, he embodied he embodied the you understand the letter of the law but your flexibility and your mind allows you to execute war how you see fit ventress mm-hmm. is that old um and yeah, I, I mean I, we see that we see that in the the heresy era that gulliman when he's drafting sort of early versions of the codex and so on, he's like, this this absolutely should not be, you know, tablets coming down from the mountain. This is this is guidelines. You know, it's like more of a, the code is not set in stone. It's more of a guideline. You know, this is this is my thoughts on how you can fight wars. You should not take this as literal gospel. So yeah. you know, I always like the idea. Uh, that Uriel kind of embodied what a 30k ultramarine yes. might have been like uh, in the original conception of what Gulliman was trying to mould them into. You know, yeah. like every, you know, I've, I've read a lot of like military books and a lot of the, the ones that surprise, well, they surprised me and they surprised a lot of people when they, when I talked about it is like the, a lot of the Marine Corps manuals, one of the things that they do there is they emphasise time and time and time again is, creativity imagination being able to think outside the box to not be a slave to dogma because the minute you're a slave to that you can be outfought as well if i do x they will do y and now we have got the trap waiting for them at y so mm-hmm. the idea that soldiers are not supposed to be automatons are supposed to be thinking human beings who can react and adapt and overcome which is you know the very ethos of these kinds of soldiers felt natural to him if they know how you fight, you can beat them. So is that a very conscious decision? Because I always know that I can always see the big difference in the 30k Space Marines and, and the 40k Space Marines. Is that something you put a lot of thought in when, if you're writing between the two, um, between Absolutely. heresy and new books? Absolutely. I mean, yes, very much so. And I, I remember reading the, you know, the Hot of the Press's manuscript, you know, of uh, Horus Rising. And I remember I was reading 
like the Morneval scenes when they're kind of horsing around and yeah. being silly and telling jokes and stuff. And I, I was reading, it going, this, this is this is this is not right. Oh, Dan, Dan, what have you done here? This is not right. These these space marines are not space marines. They're too formal. They're they're not like space marines in 40k. And then it was like, oh well, wait, that's the point, you idiot. Um, <laughs> And we, I, you know, it was a kind of that moment. I was like, "You clever son of a bitch!" That's <laughs> why the Space Marines in 40k are like this because they were like this, and look what happened. And yes. so when likely Gulliman and others said, "Okay, this kind of thinking, this kind of structure doesn't work," it it led to this, you know, too much of that free thinking nonsense, <laughs> um, and so they clamped down on it. But then when everything kind of metastasized after that everything else did too and it just became this you know rigid series of doctrines that never changed unless you know the chapter went you know wildly off codex and so on so when from that moment certainly you know i mean dan wrote the first book on the heresy obviously so you know luckily i read it and was informed and had my you know epiphany of like Oh, I see what you've done there, and I see exactly why you've done it. That's so clever. Everything after that just kind of fell into place. Like, okay, I, I know how to write 30k marines. I know how to write 40k marines, and they are very different. And I, I like the fact that Uriel, kind of well, quite by accident, because obviously I'd written him long before we we did any of the heresy books, seemed to fit into that mold. And you know, the more we played up those differences, the more it felt, yeah, this is right. This is natural. This is how it should be. Um, so, uh, last question around Ultramarines before we move on. Um, it's more to do with Primaris, actually. So, obviously, we started seeing some characters uh, in, in, in the hobby take the Rubicon. Who out there do you want to see that's not there yet take it? And and who do you want to see take it and fail? It wouldn't fail. Oh, I, you fail. If you fail, you die. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, they did it with Tycho back in the day for the Blood Angels, you know, writing a character off. Just wondering if you've got any thoughts on who you'd like to see take it and maybe um, succeed and the sort of ramifications that could have. I think it'd be interesting. Like one of the, I mean, one of the chapters close to my heart is the Black Templars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mm-hmm. seeing the tension in that, because I, I love the idea of, you know, like a, a similar way to the Heresy era Marines when they had, you know, Terran Marines join their ranks as opposed mm-hmm. to the you know the the native ones from like you know Fenris or Baal or whatever that there was a tension between them it's like are, are you a real you're yeah. a real space wolf because you know you didn't grow up on Fenris sort of thing yeah. and there's that similar tension between the you know the regular inverted commas Astartes and the Primaris because they they have to look at each other in a strange way and I think the Templars would find that tension even more hard to deal with because they I, th- I think they as a crusading force they cleave very very closely to the original you know the crusader fleets when they you know they saw the expeditionary fleets when they went out from terra on the great crusade you know that's they are like the the you know modern embodiment of that mm-hmm. although they didn't they're obviously their mission is less about going out to bring people back into the fold as to find heretics and aliens and yeah, crush heads. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I think, see, because they, I, I, I don't I can't speak, I don't know if anyone's, I don't know if we've seen any Templar Primaris, but I think it'd be interesting to see how view them in terms of this is, you know, it's this is new tech. We don't like new tech. This is, 
they're not part of what we were built for. The, the <clears> emperor <throat> built in his own image. These are these new Johnny come lately upstarts. We don't like that. Yeah. But as a loyalist chapter, they might not get a choice in the matter. And seeing that that friction between a new Primaris Templar and an existing Marine would be, I think, a rich mind to seem for drama. I was going to say, having Hellbrick as well, just from a modelling point of view, is he needs a new model anyway. So <laughs> it would be a nice, convenient a way. Primaris to... Hellbrick would be very yeah. cool, or yeah. uh, Grimaldus or something like that. Primaris Empress Champion would be very cool. I've seen some very lovely conversions on Instagram of pe- uh, people using yeah. Lieutenant models, and it's very neat and tidy. I love it. But um, for my two cents would be Dante for the Blood Angels. Um, but I love how Guy Haley has handled that in his books for the Blood Angels. I don't think he would survive. <laughs> He's very, very interesting. <laughs> I don't think he'd want to survive as well. As part of exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I think to see somebody fail, I don't know. There's not many characters out there that, I'm, that if you put them in front of me and said, right, you've got to write this person, I'd be like, oh, yeah. really? I'd, yeah. I'd love to see them all. I'd love to see, you know, a, a character who was elevated to Primaris and who passed, essentially, but, you know, ultimately couldn't handle it or there was some flaw that nobody had seen yet. And it's, yeah. you know, I, without wishing to drop into the realm of spoilers again, um, with the new, like, Marvel TV show, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, yeah. I mean, I think that, that uh, you know, the new Cap, I think embodies exactly what we've just been talking about. If, you know, without wishing to spoil the latest episode, I mean, he's kind of crossed the Rubicon and I don't think it's going to work out too well for him. Yeah, it's, uh, I've, I'm very much enjoying it. And I think you're absolutely right. It's that what if you do get that gift, that power, and it doesn't go how you hoped it would? Because exactly. all that power does is exemplify who you are. So it just brings the other. It's just like the one ring, you know, it just bring, yeah. it brings out your essential nature to the fore. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I think there's something interesting to be, because the Primaris procedure is so new and it's not had any rigorous, you know, as such as there can be in 40k science and technology, uh, you know, peer-reviewed testing. So I, yeah. I think that the idea of a Primaris, somebody losing the plot as a Primaris would be really interesting to tell. Oh, nice. Jamie, I know you, you're you chomping at the bit to talk about all things Mechanicum. Um, <laughs> over to you. Excellent. Yeah, I was gonna, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a big Admech fan, so I've been collecting them since I came back in the hobby. And actually, on one of our previous shows, we did the first um, one of the the Priest of Mars books. We did the first mm. one. Those books, to me, sort of have a big kind of a Greek Odyssey feel. It's, it's a big journey that goes on 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 a ship. A, you know literally and you know metaphorically as well being on, on that thing so kind of what was your what was your main interest to write to write that book um and not just space marines well because i mean i you can overdose on on writing space marines you can overdose on writing anything that's that's why i always love to you know hop around uh the genres and the ages so you know it was I did Warhammer books, Age of, you know, Sigmar books, 40k books, heresy books. So I, I'd like to keep things fresh in the setting and fresh in the kind of characters uh, that I write. So I, I, mean, I don't remember exactly what I'd written prior to that. And I think, I think Priests of Mars came out in something like 2011 or so, give or take. So I, at that time, I'd have likely been heavily into heresy stuff. So probably lots of space marines so 
for the same reason I did Mechanicum, I'd been doing a lot of Space Marines and I just wanted to do something different. You know, not through any dislike of Space Marines, but just to keep my enthusiasm high, my, my, my freshness of the craft and wanting to approach it every day i wanted to do something different and you're you've hit the nail exactly on the head with this the greek kind of vibe to it because like i say i i love the mythology of those periods the history of those periods so the my pitch to nick of this was like it's the it's the odyssey in reverse you know <laughs> it's not people coming home from a place and encouraging mm-hmm. all sorts of crazy things in the way it's them leaving home and mm-hmm. encountering you know the the, the lotus eaters the talos and all the things along the way to get to a place that they realized they didn't and probably shouldn't have gone to in the first place mm-hmm. um, so there's a there's a great I, there's a great feeling of, of those kinds of episodic adventures to the story and you know I, I just love that kind of age of sail exploration going you know like Patrick O'Flanagan going out the, the, to the edges of the known world and seeing what's there, you know, here be dragons over the map, the sea monsters. And as and as the characters, um, obviously one of the main characters is, is the ship itself. So kind of how was that difficult to write? Because obviously, I guess Manicanicum in general is that they're not, they're human, but not human. They have this different aspect to them. But to actually then build on that as have the ship has to have a character and yeah. what they're all in. Was that was that a difficult task for you to sort of no, no. It's just a, a slightly bigger one in the sense of, you know, I mean that that concept of the machines having spirits and souls and uh, has always been there, you know, the, the the Warhound Titans have always been the sort of the you know, the unruly pack hunter mentality things, the warlords being, you know, the the big lion you know top dog in the jungle kind of thing that that's always been there so the speranza having its own kind of character didn't it wasn't a you know a, a novel idea as such but trying to make it a more sort of implacable ancient vast kind of intellect and character as opposed to something as you know direct as this is this is like a jungle cat coming at you or a trapdoor spider or something that that was the biggest hurdle because obviously, you know, towards the end of the series, much more of the ship's personality or the ship's mm-hmm. soul essentially comes to the surface when it has to essentially join the fight for the for its its and its crew's survival. So it was just t- taking what we already had in terms that others had built on before and just you know turning it up to eleven somewhat in terms of its scale and size and implacability. Yeah, it definitely. And as the story progresses, it just gets more nuts and nuts. Like it just when they get when they finally discover where they where they, where they not to give any way to some of the people, other people out there. But when they actually get to their their destination, it's just. It's, it, and I guess you can do that with Bad Mech is that you can really just sort of build up that just kind of craziness with it, just because with them exploring lots of secrets, it's you can just open up, I guess, a Pandora's box of what what they actually yeah. might discover. And that, that was very much sort of the appeal of, I mean, that, that, that book is very much me having all my cakes and eating them at the same time because it was, you know, because I was taking the ship out past the edge of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. All bets were off, essentially, you know, that I could do what I wanted beyond the, the galactic rim. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I got to, you know, because explorator feats are made up of such a wide variety of things. So again, we have Black Templars in there. We have Imperial Guard. We have a Rogue Trader. We have Admech. We've mm-hmm. got all sorts of people in the mix. So 
because when I was when I was casting about, because I wanted to do another Mechanicus story, because I'd, I'd had such a good time on the Heresy Mechanicum novel, but I didn't want to just set it on contemporary Mars. I thought that feels like it's just going to be a retread of Mechanicum. So I was looking through, like, what do we, what do they do? What's their thing? And all the, you know, I kind of knew it, but it was just like, but I was just reading all the stuff to find what's a, what's a cool hook that they have that I could latch on to, whether it's, and I was like, okay, well, I don't really want to have them exploring a tomb because, you know, you can see how that's going to go from page one, uh, not well. Um, I didn't <laughs> want to set it on Mars because, I say I'd done that before, so the the you know the the, the great quest for knowledge felt like oh, that's just asking for a novel because it could be you know you can do all the things in there that you might not be able to do if you kept it within known space, and mm-hmm. I get to have all these cool different uh, sort of factions pushed into this you know tiny space and butt up against each other because a bunch of these people don't play well with others, so that you know. Anytime you can have that kind of friction between characters, it's just ready-made conflict and drama. Yeah, it did feel like a bit like a Big Brother house in the, at some point when my <laughs> huge Big Brother house because the scale of that ship, especially when you talk about the the war games that go on it, that that was um <laughs> that was yeah. quite fascinating that you could literally that just have and, you know just because you get to do situations and scenes you don't often get to see anywhere else. So mm, I mean, even just the, one of my favorite scenes to write was essentially the like the dinner party essentially when mm, the mechanicus yeah. guys you know they get all the sort of senior commanders so you get space marines guard mechanicus pilots pirates uh, all gathered around this one room and it's like what's what's the dinner table conversation like around there that just <laughs> that felt fascinating to well, how, yeah. how do we how do we explore that yeah. <laughs> um yeah, and just one more on this on this that story is the two one of my two favourite characters actually is the the sort of father and daughter Vitaly and Linia, right. which is Vitaly and Linia. Yeah, which you don't initially talk about Admech or in in 40k in general anyway. It's obviously Imperial side. You don't generally see a father and daughter relationship in in a novel. So was that a, a purpose choice to sort of do that juxtaposition of tech priest? Yeah, but, I mean, a lot of the characters I write or develop are ones I always look for the I always look for the gaps, you know, like early on, I, I used to do like a sort of state of, you know, when it was, when the numbers of novels were still at a level where you could do this, you know, I looked at, you know, okay, like what have we got? Who are the character archetypes? What are the settings? What are the character types that we've got? And, you know, you, you got, you started to see a lot of commonality in some of these. So I always looked for those, like, who haven't we seen? What character types and arcs and settings have we not explored to death? So the, the idea of, a father and daughter was one that came out quite early in that one because in the original and a lot a lot of what became their arcs came out of the writing of them because i knew i'd said in the set of the outline and the character list these are these characters and they do this but as, you know when i wrote the first few sort of scenes with the minute it, it took on a shape that i hadn't been expecting it's like actually this is a lot this dialogue that i've written here it makes it feel like a, a lot more tender than i'd expected it to be it felt more like he genuinely loved his daughter and you know because originally she wasn't meant to be his daughter you know she was originally meant to be like a clone that he could then harvest for organs as his life went on but then as you know when this of that genetic the mutation the gene code which you know happens from every replication of genetics you know she turned into a daughter and that felt like it was it presented vitale certainly a complication in this and 
it felt like it added an extra layer to their relationship and the fact that you know my uh daughter was born the year before certainly had an impact on on that relationship and that those characters as they went on yeah i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of emotional scenes that you don't usually expect to see in um uh, 40k or heresy um certainly not from mechanicus characters no exactly so it was um it's good yeah it takes the reader on quite quite a quite a journey with those two as well so that's Mm. i really i really enjoyed those characters yeah Yeah. and then as soon as you've got that emotional connection the rug gets whipped out from under you in a lot of cases (laughs) yeah yeah. there is a yeah not as i said not there is quite a twist in in that tale so again no spoil but the ending to book two was one that was i you know i i I struggled mightily as to whether to go down that road or not because you know one of the struggles with the right as as a writer you know and i say struggles in inverted commas there because it's you know oh you know, media artist is that you you fall in love with your characters and you want to protect them. You want yeah. to stop anything the mean you want to stop the mean thing from happening to them. Uh, and that is bad. That's a wrong instinct to follow. You know, your job as the author is to put your characters through hell, to grind them into the meat grinder and see how they react to that. You know, that's the true character comes out under duress, and that's what's interesting to watch. That's why we watch, you know. Breaking Bad or any other TV show where we see characters under stress and, and either rise to the occasion or break. Mm. Um, so, you know, your natural instincts sort of protect them from the, the bad author man who wants to do the bad things to them. <laughs> but you, you must resist that in, in imprecation at, every, at all times. And that's ultimately why I went down that road. And, you know, there's, there's further things going on, you know, happen later on, even after that. But it was yeah that was a, a tough scene to write yeah I, remember, I always remember uh i mean he may be persona non grata at the moment but i remember a, a a quote back in the day from joss whedon when he was talking about uh buffy the vampire slayer and his one of the mantras he was talking about was in one of the dvd extras he talks about how you know was it uh buffy happy show bad buffy sad <laughs> show good you know, a simplistic way of putting it, but it's, you know, I don't want to see characters doing things where everything works out well for them or they, their plans go to plan every <laughs> time. <laughs> I'm actually, funny enough, on a side note, I'm right in the middle of season three at the moment. I'm doing a big old Buffy rewatch. I haven't done it since I was about 15, and it is a it is a pleasure. One of my favourite seasons, number three. Yeah, it's great. Jamie, did you have any other questions around Mechanicus? Move into the heresy then and talk about, mm. quickly, about Mechanicum. Was... Was that you going to the to the team saying, oh, "I want to do a, a Mechanicum book," or was, or was that sort of set in the path of, "Well, we should talk, we should talk about the story here as well"? Uh, well, it, it was uh, again, uh, it's always a little of both because uh, we always we used to gather, you know, like we used to gather, you know, like I don't know, maybe four times a year or so when when the heresy was like, you know, chuntering along and there were, you know, it was a we're doing all the books for it. We would get, we would get, and back when I lived in the UK, we would gather and we would do like a state of the nation, like what what stories have we told? Where are we going? What stories do we need to tell? And because we would always be, you know, mapping out our next like year and a half, give or take, uh, novels that we were going to write for, you know, when release schedules were being, blah blah blah. And like I said earlier, I'd come off the back of probably two or three Space Marine novels, and I wanted to do something different, and I somebody i me 
somebody pitched in the room like well we haven't seen much of mars lately or in, and that's that's an important battleground we should address that and i'd recently i mean i suspect recently at whatever meeting that came up at that i'd uh, written a, a short story to go in one of the uh, one of the visions of heresy books one called the caban project because um, again we you know when when i was approached to write a story for that because they were they were you know repackaging it new cover and collected edition type thing uh, for added value, they're like, let's do a short story to go along with it. So I, you know, I took a long time to sort of land on something there because again, so many of the stories or the threads that we teased out were ones. Oh yeah, we could tell one about this, but once it, once you dug it a little deeper into it, it was like, well, no, that's that's something that probably deserves its own novel or deserves to be broken out of some collection that not everybody might get. So the one thing I, I hit upon, just you know, I was looking at all the artwork and going through it, and the, the artwork for the Caban project, I looked at and thought, that's that's an interesting picture. And the name the name alone really was the thing that sold it to me because I was like, I, I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. It sounds interesting. Nobody knows what it is. Nobody, when I asked, it's like, that's just a cool name. And we're like, I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> and I'd like, I know, I, I want to know more about that. I want to explore it, like, maybe give some flesh to what the hell is the Caban project. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote that short story. And in the process of writing that, um, I, I kind of fell in love with the, the geography and the, the, the place of Mars and its structures, its hierarchies, its geography. And the more I wrote that story, I was like, oh, there's, there's definitely a novel here. Absolutely, definitely a novel. Because Mechanicum, Mechanicum characters to me had always kind of, they always used to fall into the sort of almost the antagonist camp they, they were on your side but they were always going to mess you over they were always going to delve where man not want to dwell and unearth the thing what should not be unearthed and so on but it's like, these guys are the allies they make the guns the tanks the titans the ships and stuff like that they they're on our side um so i wanted to tell a story about them and so when that came up in whatever whichever meeting it was and the idea of a mechanicus novel mechanicum novel came up i was like you know first hand up in the room because I, I was already in that sort of vibe of play of what I wanted to do it and I wanted to do it and you know the opportunity was there and you know the stars aligned to the point where it's like yeah I, I, I'm gonna have to do this and I want to do it and I, I tried to do a few you know like you know a few things that we and I had seen in heresy as such in the sense of you know it was on Mars different settings straight away it's again it's like we we're talking about the gaps you know, yeah. a, a female lead character um, who wasn't a warrior. You know, I wanted mm. this to be a book where, generally speaking, the main characters didn't or couldn't fight their way out of it with, you know, bolters and blades and so on. If they got themselves into a sticky situation, they had to find a way out of it that did not involve just punching things hard. <laughs> How I get out of yeah. bad problems, generally. <laughs> yeah, me too. Gets me into a lot of trouble down at McDonald's, but hey. <laughs> Um, it's a book as well that I think has such a great start to it with, with the emperor, the emperor coming. Um, coming to Mars. Yeah, it's um, and then obviously you have in that one one of the most epic scenes I think from the Heresy Saber is obviously like the the last ride out of the knights was um <laughs> was the knights. I don't think at this point I, I hadn't known much about knights up to that point. So was it was it quite interesting to write about the sort of the different houses and and the structure of and how they sort mm. of actually have a lot of infighting between each other? Was that? Yeah, I mean, I because I, 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 all the, the the current 
knights and codexes and the detail of them, I think, came out after that book. I mean, mm-hmm. so, yeah. but I mean, I, I, I've loved knights ever since I played them in Epic. You know, mm-hmm. Titans are all great, but the the idea of you know, because the the, ty- the Titan commanders were always at like these unknowable gods plugged into their machines, and you yeah. rarely, if ever, saw them. Whereas the knight was a guy, he could you know hop out the cockpit and be human. So yeah. the idea of the idea of just big fighting robots is cool anyway. <laughs> so and I, they've all as part of the background. I've, I've loved them ever since I used them in um, playing Epic. So they you know it felt like an na- absolutely natural thing to do. And you know with House Tyrannus, mm. they they just become a, they they were a lot of fun to write and just ex- they exemplified to me a lot of what made Mars a fun setting to use for this story. Uh, and then, I mean, the Knights, the, the last ride of Tyrannus was something that came out of realizing that when I was at something like, I don't know, about 85,000 words through what was supposed to be a 100,000 word book. And then I was looking at my outline going, there is no way in hell I'm going to be able to fit all of this mm. into the size uh, of, a, of a book that is, you know, sellable. So it was a case of like figuring, okay, how can I, how can I do this in a way that gets me to an ending that feels satisfying that does not traipse on for another sixty thousand words? Mm. Uh, and that, that's ultimately that's where the, the last ride came from because originally <laughs> they were they were going to actually survive, get out, do a thing, find a thing, <laughs> come back. Because in the original idea, it was like they were going to go out and get and rendezvous with uh, Raph Maven and Leopold Cronus and bring uh, Dahlia back to the, the lava city and stuff was going to go on for there but then you know necessity being the mother of invention it was like okay well i've got to cut that down so they don't get out so that's going to be their last ride it's going to be a you know it's theoden rides out except gandalf isn't there to come and rescue them i was, I was about to say the exact same thing is it always makes me think the last ride out of, of helm's deep but in a yeah. Slightly more mechy kind of way <laughs> yeah, so gandalf took a wrong turn at isengard or something <laughs> One for me is uh, I've heard me and Jamie went to Black Library Live a couple of years ago and we heard Dan Abnett talk about um, the original idea was a bit more of like a tapestry of books in the heresy as opposed to like a preordained plan of, of telling the story. And it was only as it got super popular and exploded that they went, actually, we need to structure this and, and actually think about the direction we're taking stories. But how did how did the you being involved in the opening trilogy come around? Was it? happenstance was it collaborating with dan or, or editors getting in touch like what, what was that sort of process like it was it was very much uh the black library had obviously decided that this was the time to do this uh, that, that you know it's you know it's infrastructure it's it's pool of writers was deep enough and of you know craft level enough that we could do this because i you know i think we came to this at the right time because had we said right years before you know like 2003 or whatever hey we're gonna do this maybe i don't know that we could have done at that point i don't know that we were set up enough in terms of our craft our collaborative muscles to do this yet so it was very much a right time right place moment so they you know they they rallied they rallied the clans and we all descended on you know black library and myself it was a whole i mean god i try to remember it was like me dan gav uh, ben Counter, J- 
Jim Jim Swallow, a whole bunch of people. So it was artists, writers, editors, all there. And Alan Merritt was there, and he was giving us like the sort of Heresy 101, which was really interesting because it was a, it was a history we you know knew, but the the conception of it, why it came about, why this was this way, why that was that way, was really interesting. Cause it was you know it was layers to the things we thought we knew, and that very quickly became this sort of the mantra for this for the the series like okay let's let's tell the story you know but with layers to it that you don't know that you're always bringing something new to the table so it was a you know it was the, they basically got everybody who's there and wanted to be part of this they invited them to come and hear the talk pitch ideas and just discuss the heresy as a whole and i think by that time i mean i was still i was still working in the studio at the time when we did this because i think Horus Rising came out in 2005, and I'd by that point I think I'd written maybe six, six or seven novels maybe mm-hmm. at that point, and they'd been you know they'd gone down well, people were, were liking them, so you know they obviously I think they wanted to capitalise on you know the the writers who were popular amongst the the readers because that that's just going to make sense. Mm. So the the idea of being that you know the the three of us would do the opening trilogy, I mean like like yeah like you're absolutely right, there was no like we are going to do, you know, X number of books. You know, I mean, the original woolly-ish thinking that we all came up with was like, we'll do a trilogy to start, a trilogy to end it, and then maybe seven or eight or some undefined number in between. But it very much it wasn't it wasn't so much that, oh my goodness, this is popular. We should do more of these books. It was yeah. more a case of the way the story started developing, that it took on its own life. That we realised. There's no way in hell this is going to be seven or eight <laughs> books. This is there's so much story to tell, so many characters to build out, so many things we we could could do with this series. So why the hell not? I mean, we haven't set ourselves a, a you know a finish line or a, of a date or a number of books. So the sort of unspoken agreement between us all at every level was very much as long as there are stories to tell, as long as we are having fun telling them. And as long as the readers are responding to them, let's tell the stories as they come to us, as we feel they roll out naturally in a natural arc that eventually will lead to the end. I mean, that's, you know, it's... And get, now that we're coming up to the end game of things with the Siege of Terror, I mean, it's it's been an, an amazing series to be part of. I mean, I, I don't think there's... I don't think literally... there. I don't think there's any other SF series that can compare in terms of the, the length and scope and scale of it and the, the fact that we are getting to actually kind of wrap up this actual entire storyline in a planned way is phenomenal because there's so few things get to do that you know yeah. tv yeah. shows very rarely get to end at like the time it. of their choosing yeah. uh, a book series can either go on for too long to the point where they just kind of like ugh, right book 15 really um or they just you know lay lay in limbo with you know uh, you've got to book five and i want two more and the author's not writing them naming (laughs) no names um but then again as i say he is not my bitch so he does he gets to write his book whenever he wants to they're not um the fact that we're getting to end this on our terms on our playbook is just great you know, and I, I can't, I can't wait to, to not. I can't wait till we get to the ending because I want to read it, not that I want it to end <laughs> prematurely. 
Um, no, I, I mean, I, I know I know a lot of the stuff we have talked about for for the end game. Um, like I say, I've not been involved in a lot of the. I haven't involved in the Siege of Terror meetings for quite some time, obviously, because it's a COVID and b trickier to just pop down to Nottingham for the day to to do a chat. Only a short. Given that we're you know like ten thousand miles away. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so just touching on this, the siege, um, very brief. Uh, funny enough, the, the the last audiobook I listened to related to the heresy was the Fury of Magnus, and um, mm, thank you. Uh, that was uh, absolutely one of the. Uh, uh, Jamie, I know you've not read it, and I don't want to spoil anything for readers because it's really, uh, listeners because it's relatively new, but it is one of the biggest reveals in that in I think the her- any heresy book so far, with magnus just being magnus and not <laughs> the opportunities given to him which i thought was a fair a fair bargain a fair trade-off he should have done but he's magnus, is well, magnus he's magnus and he will do his own thing i mean i mean with, with that and son to the selenar in the, the siege arc um actually even though i wasn't doing like one of the, the big main doorstop novels for this I, I did not want any of these books to be inconsequential. You know, I wanted them to have things within them where, look, if you don't read it, I mean, you can still, you know, you'll read the eight books of the the siege and you'll have a great time and it'll, you'll be satisfied and you'll come away going, you know, heartbroken, elated, whatever the emotion you feel, you'll feel that at the end. But I, I wanted that, you know, I always like to add, you know, be additive to that. So if yeah. you, you know, if you read Sons of the Selenar, you will know something more about big developments that come in 40k out of the course of that book. If you read Fury of Magnus, some of what happens in either 40k and later in Siege will make, have a lot more, hopefully, emotional heft to them. Because yeah. those books were very much written with, okay, I want big plotty things and explosions happening and so on. But if the reader is not coming away either emotionally satisfied or broken or both, then I'm, I'm not doing my job well enough. Yeah, I completely hear. I think Sons of the Selenar, I mean, both books have big reveals that are, are, are like you say, weighty and, and mean something. I mean, Sons of the Selenar, it gives a big bit of validity to current situation of yeah. Astartes without too many spoilers. It, it, it grounds it in something that happened a long time ago, yeah. which I think, I think the hobby needed. I think the community is needed to just make it feel a little bit more real and, 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 and thought out. Which yeah, really so this, this, everything comes out of the past, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just uh, uh, on Primarchs very quickly, um, how do you go about writing like uh, characters like Horus yeah. and Perturabo and Full? I mean, they're, they're some pretty hefty characters. Gods. How do you make them feel relatable when they're yeah. essentially demigods? What's that sort of process? Is is there a way you all do it as writers, or is there a specific I mean, way you do it? I, I, mean, I assume everybody has their own little, you know, peccadillos as to how they like to treat these particular characters. But some, you know, like conversations I've had with, you know, various uh, other writers along the way is that, you know, simply, you know, we call them demigods or gods and stuff like this. Um, and that's an entirely appropriate label. But then, if we if you look at, you know, the the mythology of gods, they're a messed up bunch of weirdos. You know, <laughs> yeah. they all have their own massive flaws, weaknesses, character archetypes. You know, like tragic. You know, like I, I always look at the Primarchs as like 
Shakespearean tragic heroes, and in that sort of that that definition of tragic, you know, they're a they're a hero who is undone by a flaw that they cannot see in themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, like with Magnus, it was very much like, you know, Magnus is a good guy. He he is, you know, like I say in the the afterward to Fury Magnus, he's of all the Primarchs, he's the one I would love to have round for dinner one night because <laughs> I think that would be just a great evening of conversation. The trouble with Magnus, Not his flaw. Pardon? Not Conrad Kerr's when 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 him round. Yeah, you know I. Maybe for a sort of, you know, after show party, but not not for a dinner. Because <laughs> because uh, Magnus is the one. He's you know he's the one who is, he's a clever clever guy, but his flaw was always that he couldn't accept that maybe there are some things he doesn't know, that yeah. maybe there are people who are just as smart as him or even cleverer, that he couldn't see that that nobody you know like, and there was a, that lens, uh, an element of. You know, some somewhat patronising in a way. He doesn't mean it that way, but it's like when I'm the cleverest guy in the room, clearly you, I need to be clever for you because you can't quite <laughs> grasp the things I can grasp. You know, so I'll do the knowing better for you, and that can be very dangerous, uh, especially when you have godlike powers. I mean, you look at, you know, Zeus and Thor and Odin. They all have their massive, glaring flaws, which ultimately leave them open to their own doom. So the the idea of just you you write them as almost like a human archetype, but dialed to the max, mm-hmm. you know, Fulgrim, he, he was he was one of the more challenging ones to write because in his, certainly in his initial like the first two thirds of the book before he goes off the deep end, he had to come across as kind of likable. You kind of same with Horus. I mean, Dan did a masterful job oh, in Horus Rising and making Horus somebody that i you know you would walk into hell for who Mm -hmm. you would gladly follow into battle because you know one of the things we often forget and i certainly did is that when you mentioned when we're writing in the studio of you know the horus heresy and chaos legions and yada yada you'd be like horus would you're you know that in that word association game horus you go from immediately the name of horus to arch traitor heretic spat on Mm -hmm. oaths of loyalty you know, it's all too easy to forget the Horus behind that. You know, the yeah. the first and the brightest son, the, the Emperor's right hand for decades, who was his favoured son, his most prized, mm-hmm. beloved son. Whoever, you know, and if, if you're going to be the guy who gets half the Space Marine Legions to turn against their father, there's got to be something there that's worth following, that's worth being in love with. Yeah. Um, so that was, again, with Fulgrim, it was trying to make him somebody who actually was good. You know, he, he came, like most of the Primarchs who fell, most, not all, but he came from a good place, wanting to do a good thing, but that one flaw blinded them to how destructive that could make them. You know, Fulgrim wanted perfection in all things, not seeing that his drive to do that would ultimately smash his legion head first into a wall that would ab- that would ultimately blind him to the fact that people who were critiquing him or calling him on his stuff weren't trying to pull him down they were trying to help him and he couldn't see that that was like you know you critics you're just jealous of me kind of magnified so you know, it, was, it was taking you know was, you, you wrote them as people first and foremost who could do everything you know i think um, like again, to borrow an, another analogy, like Homelander from the Boys, yeah, is mm. 
I would look to him as like first time we saw him in screen is like that's a traitor Primark. Yeah, yeah somebody absolutely. he's yeah, been yeah. given the ultimate power. And again, we're coming back around again to the beginning of the discussion. He's somebody who's given ultimate power, but that ultimate power has warped something that was probably disgusting and horrible and evil inside him already. And it's just given him more free reign to do that. Yeah. And and Homeland is very human. You know, you look at his foibles, the things that drive him mental are things that in all of us you could see ah, I, I i could see that why that would annoy you or why you would be mad at that but luckily i don't have super strength and laser beam <laughs> eyes to kill people when those things happen yeah with fulgrim you saying about fulgrim is obviously he wears the imperial eagle like, there's a reason that he's allowed to wear that mm-hmm. the emperor must have seen something good in him and but um and, and there's that scene with um, when he actually did, finally kills ferris manis when there's that sort mm. of that bit where he is like, oh crap, what, what have I done? But he's it's in the in in almost in his head where he's like, I'm push that, push that. Exactly. Pattern. I mean that 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 scene was, I mean I, I wrote and rewrote that scene a dozen times yeah. because you know, it the initial writings of it was all about the killing, and making that moment big, and it, and it needed to be. But the more I wrote it, the more I realized it's not the killing is important. That's a crux moment in the heresy. But what's the the drama and the emotion of that scene doesn't come from the killing. It comes from what Fulgrim realizes and feels immediately after it. Mm-hmm. When he re, when the, the demon that was, you know, whispering to him all this time finally drops the veil and lets <laughs> him see, look at what you did. You know, <laughs> it, it it took the blinker the blinkers off him when he got to see the truth, you know, that all these things that people were telling me that I took as jealous jabs and criticisms and attempts to tear me down, they were trying to help me. They were trying to stop me going down this path. Yeah. And having that revealed to him just at the moment where he's killed his closest brother is the thing that just plunges him into the abyss of despair. And that's when he's at his most vulnerable is when the demon says, look, I can make this go away. You know, when you're suffering the worst ever pain you could imagine and somebody says, I can make it go away. Just do do this thing. Let me in and I will make it all go away. Yeah. At that point, you know, <clears throat> he had no chance. You know, he was, he was doomed from a long time before then. But that moment, Fulgrim was such a powerful individual that the demon could only get him when he was at the very bottom of the curve. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I can't remember who said it in a comic book writing world. It's like, how do you beat Superman? You break his emotions. You can't break him any other way. You've got to, you've yeah. got to visit, like inside, not not physically. Uh, I'm conscious we've only got a couple more minutes with you, Graham. So um, we've only just started doing interview episodes and we've got a sort of closing question. And it's, it's putting sure. you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> okay. Um, it, the entire Black Library range, yours or any other writer's books, if you had to be marooned on an island and you only had, you'd only take one, um, what would it be and why? Well, you know, obviously modesty forbids me from picking one of my own. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't do that anyway. You know, I, I've only ever reread one of my own books <clears throat> in its entirety. But I, if I had to pick one book that I could read and read and read again, it would probably be Riders of the Dead by Dan Abnett because I am I'm a massive sucker I love the whole Russian steps kind of vibe that kind of 
Kosaki, Winged Hussars, mm. Ice Queen set. I mean, that's why I, I wrote the two Ambassador books set up there. Because again, at the time, where's the gaps? Who ha- what setting haven't we seen? What character types haven't we seen? So let's have an old guy up in Kislev. Done. So I, I love that scene, that whole setting, rather. And it's just a great book. I mean, I just love it. It feels, of all the, the, the Warhammer novels I've ever read, it was the one that felt just so grounded in reality while having that fantastical edge to it as well. And it's, you know, it's it's, it's a classic, you know, it's two brothers torn aside, one goes evil, one goes good, mm-hmm. and bring them back together again and exploring the, the Kislev, the Oblast and the Steppe and so on. It was just, it's a wonderful book. I love it. I think I think we're there, Graham. I think that's about it. Excellent. It's, no, really, it's, it's been really good. I've enjoyed this. Yeah, enjoyed this chat. Yeah, you're more than welcome to, to, to join us again. Um, was there anything you wanted to end on? Anything you want to shout out, or how people can come find you on social media, or anything like that? Yeah, um, well, you can you can find me on Twitter at Graham McNeil, unsurprisingly, um, and. Thank you guys for having me on. Thank you everybody for reading the stories, reading the books and enjoying them hopefully. And we'll hopefully we'll, we'll see you in the pages for some new adventures of Space Marines, Heresy and who knows what else in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our next our next episode is on Angel Exterminatus. So, um Aha, excellent. We will be discussing we will be discussing that with, with with our listeners next. So, yeah. Hopefully it's oh. a good seg- it's, it's into a good segue into that book. Nice one. I'll look forward to listening to it. Great. Um, Oh, we'll let you go then. Thank you for your time, Graham. Really appreciate it. It was no problem at all, guys. Thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, mate. Take care. Take care, man. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.